Good morning. We are glad you are here. Um, our text is going to be in 1 Corinthians 12, if you would like to turn there. Uh, if you're a visitor with us this morning, uh, we want you to know that we are especially pleased to get to worship with you. Um, scripture, you know, we just sang a lot of songs about being one and being brought together by God and being made what we are because of Him. And what Scripture tells us in Romans is that when we come together and we seek to honor God and we seek to glorify Him, we do so with what He says is one voice. And so whether we know you or not, whether you're familiar with people in here or not, if you are in Christ, God isn't pleased to just hear hundreds of different voices. He's pleased that when hundreds of different people gather, He hears one voice that is united in Christ. And so as we worship with you this morning, we do count it a privilege. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go to our text. Let's pray. Lord, we count it a privilege to worship you. You are great and greatly to be praised. What you do in and among people is amazing. And as we get to consider that this morning, I pray that you would make things clear to us, encourage us, warn us, um, help us to have more insight than we had before we came in here. Lord, we pray specifically for a few things this morning. One, uh, we want to pray for our city council, Lord. We, your word tells us to pray for those who, who are in authority and those who work in that area. And so we pray for our city council. We pray that you would help them to move in wisdom so that this would be a community where the gospel message can go forward. A community where people are genuinely blessed, not just in ethereal ways, but in actual tangible ways. I pray that they would be wise stewards and that you would guide them in a unified effort. As we see lots of construction going on around us, and I'm sure that most of us visited Academy this week, we're, we're thankful. We're thankful for decisions that have been made and things that are going on uh, that allow our community to grow. And we know that the only person who causes true, genuine growth is you, and we thank you for what you do among those people. Lord, we pray also for a fellow church. I pray for Cornerstone Fellowship in Caddo Mills. I'm thankful for Trent Brown and for the friendship that I've had with him for years, and to know how he pours his heart out um, and serves those people, I pray that you would bless them this morning as they gather. I pray for he and Natalie that their marriage would be beautiful and a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. Lord, we also pray for our Munich team this morning as we have some students and adults at base camp for the next couple days and then flying out to Munich. I pray that you would use them in a mighty way for the forward movement of the gospel. We entrust them to you and pray that you would bless their time, keep them safe, and allow them to bless others through their actions, through their words, and through how they love. We humble ourselves before you this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's sermon is going to be an intro to a new uh, sermon series that's going to last for about nine to ten weeks. It's going to be an intro for our spiritual gift sermon series. We're going to be talking about spiritual gifts. After prayer and consideration, the leadership has decided that it would be fitting for our body, where we are, to spend a focused nine to ten weeks specifically on spiritual gifts, where they come from, what they are, and what some of the gifts are specifically. So look at 1 Corinthians 12 with me, and we're going to start in verse 12 and go through verse 27. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. As we read scripture, one of the things we should pay attention to is repeated things, and one thing that is repeated all through here is one, 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 one. There's a reason for that. For the body, verse 14, does not consist of one member, but of many. And if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make the ear any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is... God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would, be, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet 
one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts don't require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. I grew up in a house of four boys, so you can just start feeling sorry for my mom immediately. And one of the many ways that we got into trouble was playing jokes on each other, or better yet, playing jokes on mom and dad, or even better than that, playing jokes on unsuspecting house guests. Every now and again, you would run across an item that would just deliver over and over again, just that one practical joke item, like a whoopee cushion, right? We're all grown up in here, but if someone was to sit on a whoopee cushion right now, everyone's giggling. It'd be funny. Whoopee cushions are always funny. Don't act like they're not. Don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that's funny. They're funny. It doesn't matter how old you are. It's always funny. So for us, when we were playing jokes, uh, one such item that just delivered over and over was the old severed hand, the old rubber hand that looks like a real hand. We got some serious mileage out of that in our house. And as I was preparing this sermon, I thought about that severed hand because we have this illustration in the text about one body and many parts. And so they're supposed to be together, but if there's a part that's, that's not together, that's a problem because severed body parts are, 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 are disturbing because that's not the way it's supposed to be. And that's, that's why I thought about that old severed hand. So I called my mom and dad to see if they had seen it around because they still live in the same house and they've been cleaning things out lately. And so I was like, well, hey, let me know if you all see that severed hand. And I called them earlier this week to see about it. And ironically, my mom said that just a few weeks ago, she opened a drawer and there it was. And just like old times, she screamed. Sadly, that is the day it perished. At that moment, mom decided it was time to throw it out, that it had gotten enough mileage. She was tired of it freaking her out. It was done. Over two decades of solid use. And the month I want to use it before a sermon illustration, they throw it out sad. Don't worry, I found another one. (laughs) Now, I hope this doesn't make anyone too squeamish with its realistic nature. The one we had growing up put this one to shame. The one that we had growing up, had you could see like the the veins and the skin color didn't look uh, like whatever this is. In fact, this has like some yellow spots on it, like mustard, like this person ate a hot dog or something. Um, So, The one we had growing up put this one to shame. And in fact, the one we had had a little sleeve on it with a flap. And so what we would do was we would hang it out of the trunk of our mom's car without her knowing, and strangers would honk and point, and she would have no idea what was going on. Or we would put it in the silverware drawer while mom was getting dinner ready, and we would just sit and wait for, for her to scream, and it was always funny. And if we were feeling particularly ambitious, Um, we would use familiar uh, jewelry. So my dad had a ring that was a gold ring that was the shape of Texas, very distinct. Every now and again, we would take dad's ring, put it on the hand, put it somewhere sticking out of the sofa or something weird that you didn't expect, and just wait for the scream. It always delivered every single time. Or if we had that unsuspecting house guest, we'd do the old shake someone's hand with it, and then pull your hand away and watch them flip out a little bit while they're holding what they think for a moment is a severed human hand. So why was it always effective? I think we're going to come back to that in a moment. But for now, I'm just going to put the severed hand on the crown of thorns for a slightly morbid example of how things aren't supposed to be. That is weird. You didn't show up this morning expecting to see that this morning. I guarantee it. 
So at the beginning of this chapter in First Corinthians, or in the, at the beginning of um, the chapter, you, you see in twelve one it says, "Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed." So Paul tells the Corinthian church that he doesn't want them to be uninformed concerning spiritual gifts. So we can assume that whatever follows is Paul's attempt to inform and to clarify for the Corinthian church what it meant to have spiritual gifts and who has them and why we have them and where they come from. And to do this, what Paul uses is the illustration of one body in many parts. That's how Paul is going to help them to understand spiritual gifts because the reality was they already had them. So he didn't have to convince them of that. He had to convince them of how they work and in what, in what context. So look at verses 12 through 13. It says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. When he says, I don't want you to be uninformed, Paul's means of informing the church is to tell them how they must see themselves. For spiritual gifts to make any sense, you have to see yourself properly. You are many members, hands, feet, eyes, ears, that make up one body. So the point that he's making is our first point of the morning. Point number one is this. If you don't see yourself as a member of a body, spiritual gifts will not make sense and they will not matter to you. If you don't see yourself as a member of a body, Spiritual gifts are not going to make sense to you, and spiritual gifts are not going to matter to you. The very next verse shows Paul going into an explanation of how a body works. So he just launches right off into it. So from the outset, if you don't see yourself as a part of a body, that's a problem, because you're not going to understand where Paul's going. From the outset, if you don't see yourself as part of something bigger than yourself, if you don't see yourself as genuinely connected to other people through Christ, if you don't see yourself as more than a lone ranger in the faith, if you don't see yourself as needing to know others and needing to be known by others, Paul refers to you as uninformed and mistaken. If that's how you see yourself this morning, we're going to look at that for a few minutes. There are many reasons that people don't see themselves as part of a body. And it's utterly important in understanding where we're going for the next 10 weeks. So we have to take a moment to consider what are the many reasons and why, and what does it mean if people become alienated from their local church? Many people have been wronged. If I, if I had a show of hands this morning of people who have been wronged by other professing Christians, probably every single person would raise their hand. There's probably no one who has escaped that nasty little thing that happens in churches all too often where Christians are divided over something or there's a conflict that goes unresolved. Many have been wronged, victimized, hurt, led astray by bad leadership, caught up in politics and division that weren't even supposed to be a part of the church in the first place. I'm genuinely brokenhearted at the vast number of people that I've met over the years who are professing believers who have no problem with Jesus at all. In fact, they would say, me and Jesus are close. Yet those same people do not view themselves as part of a body. Some of them don't want to view themselves as part of a body. So in one way, we have a sad situation because of the circumstance. In one way, it's sad because people have been through something hard. If you're sitting here and you've been through something hard and someone has wronged you and you feel because of that alienated from the body, from the church, that's a sad circumstance. But there's actually something that Paul is addressing here that's more tragic. There's that sad circumstance, but there's something more tragic because of the lie that that person is believing. What God is saying through Paul here is profound. In the moment that a person becomes a Christian... That person becomes indwelled by the Holy Spirit. So if you're a professing Christian here this morning, and you have, you have confessed your sins, you've repented, and you are following Christ, you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, according to these verses. In that moment where you confess and repent, you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Verse 7 plainly states, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 
So each have a manifestation of the Spirit of God for the common good. So in that moment where you come to Christ, something happens that has never happened before. There's realities in your life that are new that weren't there before that moment. And the moment where you confess and repent, the Spirit manifests Himself in you in a way that has not happened before. And in that moment, two things are true, whether you feel like they're true or not. One, you have a spiritual gift, a manifestation of the Spirit of God in your life for a reason. And number two, you're a member of the body. In that moment, you're a member of the body. So if people present a gospel presentation and you say, yes, I love Jesus, but there's no connection to a body, find the local church. I mean, we have the body, right, which is the body of Christ, the church universal, but that, if it's actually expressed with people, with real lives, knowing and being known, then we can expect and we can understand from this text that then we're talking about these local bodies. This would be one of many local bodies of believers in Greenville. So in that moment, you have a spiritual gift, and in that moment, you're a member of the body. This is what Paul goes on to explain. Look at verse 14. He says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. There are no one-member churches. There's no way, according to this verse, for anybody to say, I love Jesus, that's it. That's all I need. Because by God's design, if you love Jesus, if he causes you to love Jesus, he causes you to also need other people, and he causes other people to, in fact, be needed by you. So verse 14 makes it very clear, you're not alone, and you are not all that matters. Because look at 15 through 20. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. He's establishing truth here. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would be the body? As it is, there's many parts, yet one body. So here's what Paul's doing here. Paul is addressing two very real dynamics at play in the life of the Corinthian church. It's always uh, interesting and fun to study the Corinthian church because I think we can really identify with the Corinthian church because they were so messed up. They were backwards. They didn't have things in perfect order. And sometimes it's when you're reading First or Second Corinthians, it's like, yeah, I get that. I kind of do that stuff. Yeah, I need to be corrected in that. Yep, that resonates true with me. I have a tendency to go this way when I should be going this way. And so here what's happening is he's addressing two dynamics at play in the Corinthian church. And I think that these are two dynamics that could be at play in any Christian church, especially here in the States. In the Corinthian church, like this church, everyone has a spiritual gift. Now, if you're sitting there going, uh, hey, dude, I don't know. I mean, I hear you, but I don't know if I have a spiritual gift like you're saying. What you need to hear is, yes, you do. Now, we got 10 weeks to figure out what it is and where you need to use it. But there's a reality we reckon with before we go into that detail of what it is. We don't focus too much on what it is rather than we focus on what it's for. So here, in the Corinthian church, everyone has a spiritual gift. But not all of the gifts are being appreciated and revered as they should be. Not all of them are being properly viewed. Some are seen as important, while others are seen as not less important, but unimportant. So here's the result that's, that, that Paul's having to address in the Corinthian church regarding spiritual gifts. The result is that some people are treated as more important because their gifts are more out in the open, they're more obvious. Most likely in this text, they're talking about tongues or healings or prophecies. The things that when it happens, people go, wow, look at that. Look at that. Look what that person just did. And so what's happening is those more obvious gifts that are, that are public and out in front those people who have those gifts are being treated as more important. And what's happening is they're starting to feel like they're more important. They're starting to feel like they're more important. And then on the flip side, there's other people in the church who have less obvious, less public gifts, like maybe the gift of like administration or the gift of service or the gift of hospitality 
or the gift of giving. And what happens is those people who are not in the spotlight and not wowing people in public are treated like they're less important. And what happens is over time, those people have started feeling like they're less important. That's what's going on in the Corinthian church. People with spectacular gifts being treated as more important, they start feeling like they're more important. People with less spectacular gifts are treated as less important, and they are beginning to feel less important. So for those who were feeling less important, what does Paul do? Well, Paul's approach is again to inform them with what is true. What does the text say? The foot assumes it doesn't belong to the body because it's not a hand. Imagine if your body did that. Just, I mean, were you, the illustration's right there, the image is right there. What if your foot just said, you know what, I'm done today. I'm not a hand. I don't matter. Get along without me. What do you think your body would do? No, 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 I need my foot. That, that's ridiculous to think that just because you're a hand, you don't belong. The illustration here is ridiculous on purpose. Why would they do that? Why would this happen? The foot says to the hand, I don't belong because I'm not a hand. The ear assumes that it doesn't belong to the body because it's not an eye. Both assume that they don't belong or that they are unimportant because they're comparing themselves to others. Please hear that this morning. The reason that some members assume that they don't belong and feel less important is because they're so busy comparing themselves to others. And Paul's response is, just because you feel that way doesn't make you any less a member of the body. I mean, he says it. He says, you say I'm not this, I'm not important because I'm not a member. And Paul says, but that doesn't make you any less a member, just because you feel that way. In other words, Just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean it is a certain way. That's something you hear from this pulpit a lot. Our feelings do not establish our reality. It may establish your perceived reality, your perception of things, but just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean it is a certain way. And Paul is using that right here, saying, just because you feel unimportant does not mean that you are unimportant. Don't let your feelings be the means by which you try to figure out what's really true. In other words... Stop assuming that you're unimportant in comparison to others. Stop assuming that you are unimportant in comparison to others. If we're going to understand spiritual gifts, if we're going to use them rightly, you have to stop assuming that you are unimportant in comparison to other people. I want to be careful here because those being addressed in the text and those being addressed this morning are probably already feeling a little beat down. I mean, if you're sitting here and you showed up and you have this disposition that you're, you're not really needed by anyone else, and you're not really very important, and you're totally dispensable, if you have that sense, you're probably already feeling beat down. In your mind, you have a reason for feeling unimportant. I I don't doubt that. Let's look at some of those reasons. Maybe you feel unimportant because you feel like you're too young. I've struggled with that. I'm an elder, and I'm a younger elder. And I'm like, good grief. Look at the heroes in the faith above me even if it's just by a few years. Maybe you're a seven-year-old and you just are beginning your journey of faith and you feel unimportant. It's not abnormal for children to feel unimportant. Well, guess what? The church is the place where they make sure they know how important they are. So maybe you feel like you're too young and that's why you feel unimportant. Maybe you feel unimportant because the total opposite. Maybe you feel like you're too old. You look at these young families and you think, oh man, they have just got it together. Can I just tell you something? As one of those guys who's leading a young family, none of us have it together. People in their 50s and 60s and 70s, please don't look at us and say, "Ah, I'm not going to butt in. They've got it it all figured out. No, we don't. We desperately, desperately need you. So some of you may feel unimportant because you feel like you're too old. Maybe you feel unimportant because you feel like you have too many kids to really be of help to anybody else. Maybe you, have, maybe you feel unimportant to the body because you have so many family dynamics that are so difficult, so complicated, so hard, so tiresome that you're like, I don't have anything for anybody else, so I can't be important to other people except for these people in my home. Maybe you feel like you're unimportant because you don't have any kids. 
and that makes you feel less important and less needed by others. Maybe you feel like you would be less helpful because of any number of circumstances. But Paul says that feeling doesn't make you any less a member of this body than anyone else. Paul Tripp has a great quote. It's one of my favorites. He says, your view of yourself is as accurate as a carnival mirror. And what you need is God's people to hold up the mirror of his word so that you can see who you really are. This is a mirror. We don't look into it and then walk away and forget about who we really are. And what he's saying is, some of you feel like you're not important. Some of you feel dispensable. But if I hold up the mirror of God's word and you look at it, what you're going to find is that you are utterly important. You have the manifestation of God in your life, and it is for the good of others. And you are not dispensable. You are not unimportant. You need to see the mirror of the word to understand what's really true because your feelings are betraying you. He's also saying, for those people who say, oh man, other people are just so much stronger than me, or surely someone else can do this better than I'm doing it. I struggle with that as a pastor. There are days where I sit in my office and I'm like, God, there has got to be somebody who can do this better than I'm doing this, because I'm feeling beat down and I feel the lies of the enemy just caving in some days. That's not humility. It may look like humility to say, no, 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 let's let someone else do it. No, no, I'm, I'm not going to serve. And that, no, someone else can work the nursery. No, 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 I am not a deacon. I, hey, I'm not a deacon. There, there, that can look really humble. But what this text is telling us is that's not really humble. It only looks really humble. It only seems that way. Because what Paul is saying is, you're not seeing things for how they really are. You're not seeing things for how God made them and shaped them and formed them. The reality of the matter that Paul wants those people to see, those who are sitting there saying, I'm not them, so I'm not important. Paul says, here's what you need to know. Verse 18, as it is, I love that phrase. It seems so insignificant, but just as it is, like you in your life, as you sit here on a Sunday morning, as it is, this is like the for real Friday things people post online that like, this it, let's be real. This is how it is. As it is, as you sit here in the middle of your messes, as you're tired, as you'd probably maybe rather be doing something else, as, as whatever is, maybe you're just worn down, maybe you're fired up, whatever it is. Maybe you are mountaintop this morning and you are so fired up for Jesus and you're looking around wondering maybe why other people aren't. Whatever the spectrum is, as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. Whether you're six years old and beginning your journey of faith, or a hundred years old and feeling tired, you have the manifestation of the Spirit of God. The manifestation of God in your life. And when this talks about God arranging the members in the body, each one of them as he chose, we're seeing a picture of God's wisdom that is being put on display in this canvas right here. Real people. You have particular spiritual gifts because of God. You, have, you live in this particular area. If you hate Greenville, God put you here for a reason. Get over it. Get a pass to the water park, go eat at some new restaurants, and get over it. <laughs> you have particular gifts. You live in this particular area. You attend this particular church because God has arranged you as he chose. That means that as we look around the room this morning, we should marvel. As you look around, look around the room for a minute, it's okay. It doesn't have to be all eyes on me right this second, look around for a minute. Are you blown away by what you're seeing? Because as you look around the room, we should marvel knowing that God is uniquely manifesting himself in every believer according to his perfect wisdom so that we can be built up having everything that we need, never lacking, always knowing that within the body, God has manifested himself in other people so that we can have what we need to get through what may even seem the craziest of trials. This is a great encouragement for those who feel less important and less useful. 
If you feel less important and you feel less useful and you feel disconnected, I want you to know your gifts do not manifest the Holy Spirit any less than someone else with more obvious gifts. Your gifts, even if they're very quiet and behind the scenes and no one ever sees them, your gifts do not manifest the Holy Spirit any less than the guy in the pulpit or any less than the people on the stage. The manifestation of God in anyone is a miracle. It's beautiful, and we should be encouraged. This is also a reminder that the church is an all-hands-on-deck kind of thing. For the body to work the way the body was designed to work, everyone must contribute. Our goal at Crosspoint is to make sure every member is a contributing member. And I'm not just talking about financially, although that is part of it. I'm talking about the service of ministry, using your gift for the edification of other people, for building them up all hands on deck, everybody must contribute. So that's one problem in the church is that some people feel like they're not important, but then there's another problem that Paul now shifts to in the church. The strong encouragement is in fact followed up by very strong warning. Look at verses 21 through 26. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. So earlier, we had one member saying to another member, I'm not important because I'm not them. But here he's saying, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. So then we have other members in the Corinthian church that are haughty, proud, and looking down at others saying, I don't need you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honor, we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body. Remember, there were those that were treated as less important, and they began to feel less important over time. But there was the other group that was treated as more important, and those people began to feel more important over time. And in their arrogance, and in their popularity, and in, and in the way that people looked at them and wanted to be like them and do what they were doing with spectacular spiritual gifts, and their arrogance and their popularity, they also began to feel more self-sufficient. That is often how it works. This is true to life. If people begin to treat you with more honor and you don't have the humility of Christ, in, a, in time, you will get to a point where you begin to feel self-sufficient. You'll become the kind of person that says, I don't, I don't need other people. I got this. I got this. You'd be the opposite of what I explained earlier about a, a, someone saying, I got this. I don't need you. I got this figured out. I don't need someone else. You feel self-sufficient because people are treating you with honor. They were the I looking at the hand and saying, I don't need you. And they were the head looking at the feet and saying, I don't need you. They were the ones in the spotlight looking at those on the fringes saying, I'm more important than you and I don't need you. And what, I love Paul's words here. Paul says, on the contrary, on the contrary, he's, he's interjecting here and saying, that may be how it works, with like in just social realities, like people, that may be how culture works, but on the contrary, that is not the way that the church works. He's looking at the Corinthian church, essentially saying, what are you doing? Why would we be divided over this? He says, on the contrary. I want you to underline that in your Bible, because that is a turning point in this text. On the contrary, that may be how the culture works, but that's not how the church works. In the church, he starts off with, he says three things. And the first thing he says is, in the church, those who seem weaker, seem being the important word here, those that seem weaker are indispensable. Indispensable. He's not saying, we need to make sure the weaker ones feel like they're needed. We need to make sure the weak ones feel like they're indispensable, even though we know who's really important. No, he's establishing a truth fact that exists in the church because of the movement of God and is manifesting himself in people. The weaker ones, the, the ones that seem weaker, we cannot do without them. That's what God is saying. 
Let's go back to our severed hand, shall we? The reason that this, this, not this one, but the one we had, the reason that this was always so effective is that the only place for a human hand in our world is when it is attached to a human body. That's why it was always effective, because you would see something that would be like, that's not supposed to be like that. That's why people flipped out so quickly until they realized it was made of rubber. The only place in the world, the only place for a hand in our world is attached to a body. Go with me down a little ridiculous road here. Nobody, upon seeing severed hands sitting on the floor, would say, hey, there's a, there's a hand missing a body. Maybe they're trying to be witty in like a really nightmarish situation and inappropriate. Hey, there's a, there's a hand that's missing a body. No, you'd say, somebody's missing a hand. Just think about it. It's morbid and weird, but if you saw a hand on the floor, you would say, oh my goodness, that's not supposed to be like that. Somebody is missing a hand. And you would certainly not then go up to the severed hand and say, you're free. Way to go. You've freed yourself from the entanglements of the body. What are you going to do with your spare time? No. You would do your best to preserve the hand in order to get it back to the body that it belongs to. And when you returned it, that person would surely not say, ah, hold on to it. Keep it. I'm good. I went without it for a few minutes. I can, I can live without it. They wouldn't say, hand, I have no need of you. They would say, thank God somebody found my hand. Let's put it back where it belongs. And interestingly, those weak little fingers would seem far less dispensable once you got them back, probably. Paul states that the church is different. Those parts that may seem less important, they're not the head, they're not the eye. They're just some small part. Those that seem less important in the church, number one, those parts are indispensable. We don't want them to just feel indispensable. They are indispensable. The body needs that hand. The body cannot actually function the way it was designed to originally function by a creator God without that hand. Now, could you figure out a way to get by without a hand? Sure, lots of people do it. But ask any of them, they'd probably rather have the hand back because it's hard. It's not the way it's supposed to be. You shouldn't have to compensate with other things. You're supposed to have the hand. And in a like manner, that hand without a body is going to die. The body will figure it out. The body can adjust, but the body still sees the hand as indispensable. But that hand, when it's separate from the body, it can do nothing. It cannot cry out for help. It cannot move on its own. It cannot adjust and figure it out. It will die apart from the body. The second thing that Paul says when he says, on the contrary, the weaker parts are indispensable, and then look at verse 23, he says, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we think less honorable, so we have seem and how we might think, the parts that are think less honorable, we, the church, bestow greater honor. It is not unusual for a person for, to come up to me or Ben or Brad after we preach or the worship team after they lead worship and thank us and, in a sense, bestow honor on us for what has been done. There was one time in this body where a, a member of the body, they took me and my wife to dinner, and it was a steak dinner at an amazing restaurant, and it was like, why are we here? And he was like, you serve up steak when you teach and preach, and I appreciate it, so I want to honor you by buying you a good steak. I love that person so much, the weight of my heart is steak. <laughs> but they were, in a sense, saying, I want to honor you for what you're doing. I want to encourage you this morning, in light of the text, to bestow some honor on the sound guys. You have no idea how utterly indispensable the sound guys are. Take some time as the church to bestow some honor on those deacons who are going to be cleaning up and locking up once you've gone to lunch. Take some time to bestow honor on all the volunteers who aren't in here right now because they are loving on your children and teaching them truth about Jesus. It's quiet. It's not in the spotlight. They don't wear a microphone. Take time to honor them. 
Show some honor to the person who quietly serves through simple tasks and quiet encouragements. Tell them they're doing a great job and urge them to do more of it. That's what the church does. Our culture does not do that. The church is supposed to be different. We're supposed to look different. But look at how our culture moves. Our culture does not show greater honor to those who they think might be less honorable. Consider our awards shows. I'm assuming everyone's seen an award show. If you haven't, just, you know, Google award shows after this is over. But an award show, like the Grammys, the Emmys, the Tonys, whatever. Maybe the Tonys, I don't know. It's iffy on that one. The award shows are this. Wealthy and popular people giving awards to other wealthy and popular people for being wealthy and popular. That's every award show. And what will we as the public do? We will cancel events, take time out of our schedule to sit for two hours and watch all of these wealthy, popular people give awards to other wealthy and popular people for being wealthy and popular. I'm not saying they don't work hard. I'm just saying everyone there is already very, very honored. And they're there to receive more honor from people who are already honored. Honoring the honored, honoring the honored, popularize the popular, make the wealthy more wealthy. That's kind of how our culture works. And what Paul's saying is, on the contrary, the church doesn't do that. And then at the end of the award show, it blows my mind, they send all these rich people home with gift bags full of thousands of dollars of stuff that they could easily afford if they really wanted any of it. Another example might be a really nice restaurant. A popular, esteemed, honored person walks in, and probably they're going to be seated in some sort of a seat of honor, and maybe they'll be given one of the better waiters or waitresses. Maybe they're even given free drinks and appetizers just because of who they are. But in that same restaurant, if a homeless person wanders in, they're just as quickly escorted out and not welcomed. What Paul is saying here is don't let the church be like that. The church is supposed to be different. Recount the deeds of the Lord as he manifests himself in the life of your brothers and sisters when you see it and you're blessed by them. Recount the deeds of the Lord. Welcome those. Honor those who may be thought of as less honorable. The third thing he goes on to say, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. Well, I got to be careful with this one, right? I think we all know what he means by unpresentable parts, right? Please shake your head yes so that I know that you know what we're talking about because I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail on what we're talking about. But he's saying our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. If you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'm just going to say a couple sentences. As I was getting ready for worship this morning, I took great care to cover my less presentable parts. <laughs> and as you laugh awkwardly and squirm uncomfortably in your seat, I cannot help but notice that all of you also took great care to cover your less presentable parts. Everybody here is on the same page when it comes to the less presentable parts. Why? Well, because... Modesty is unassuming. Modesty, this is a, this is a we're going to have to work a little bit harder to understand what Paul is saying here, but I think we can do it. Modesty is unassuming. What that means is, is that we would never assume it is appropriate or fitting to leave the house uncovered. In light of the fall, in light of sin, in light of what God has told us, it is never fitting for any of us to leave the house Uncovered. So, to some degree, every single one of you, whether you realized it or not, you spent a few moments figuring out what was most appropriate for the day and how you were going to cover your less presentable parts, whether you realized it or not. And if you're going to the water park, it may be different. And if you're going to the, to, you know, the park where it's, it's hot, it may be different. And if you're going to the grocery store, it may be different. If you're going to a funeral, it would be different. We, we all, whether we realize it or not, take time to figure out how to cover up our less presentable parts. Because it's what's fitting for the occasion. If we say a person is modest, we say that a modest person is, is unassuming of their abilities. What this is a picture of is a picture of good taste and decorum. 
and it has to do with propriety. Here's what I think Paul is saying. I think that this means that with those believers whose gifts are not always out in the open for everyone to see, we as a church are supposed to spend more time considering what their gifts are and how they can use them so that we can know what is suitable and fitting for each occasion for them to build people up. That's what I think this text is saying. I didn't spend any time this morning figuring out in what manner I was going to cover my forearms and my hands. Because you don't need to. In the same manner, it may be more obvious who's going to lead worship. It may be more obvious who's going to preach. And it may be less obvious who's going to do the more behind-the-scenes kind of serving that is apparently really needed because they're called indispensable. So just because it's less obvious and less out in the open doesn't mean it's less important. And those less obvious gifts may need to be something that we, in fact, spend more time figuring out because God calls them indispensable. That's why we're spending nine to ten weeks on spiritual gifts so that we can encourage people to use their gifts in a way that is suitable for each occasion of the church, of the church so that they can build others up. That's why we're doing what we're doing. Because we have to take time to figure out when it's not real obvious and out in the open, what are people's gifts and how can they use them? Because God calls you indispensable. What Paul is presenting here is this, this illustration that says, just because your less presentable parts are covered up doesn't mean they're less important, right? None of us would say those parts are unimportant just because they're covered up, and we would never say that we cover them up just because they're less important. We would agree that they're very important. And what he's saying is, for those that it's not obvious what their gift is, that doesn't make them less important. In fact, it may mean that you need to do the same thing you did when you were getting dressed this morning and spend a little more time figuring out what's fitting for the occasion. We've got some work to do as a church to figure that out because some people have no idea what their spiritual gifts are. So that's all point one of the morning. You have to see yourself as a member of the body. The spiritual gifts are going to make any sense. Point number two is much shorter. Look at 24b, the second part of 24 into 26. It says, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Here's Here's the second point of the morning, and it's very important. God's plan is to give spiritual gifts to everyone so that there may be no division in the body. Y'all hear that? Have you ever been a part of a church where there's no division at all? Just like, wow, no one has any conflict. I, I haven't. That, that's a reality that we have to struggle with because we're fallen human beings. But we're not only fallen human beings. We're also human beings that have been given the spiritual gifts. And God says, my plan and my infinite wisdom is to give spiritual gifts to every single member of the body so that there may be no division. For Paul, he looks at the Corinthian church and he sees division. And when he realizes what it's over, he is shocked. He is floored. Because ironically, their division is over the very thing that God created so that there would be no division. He's saying to them that they're divided over the spiritual gifts. And he's saying, guys, the spiritual gifts are the very thing that God gave you so that there would be no division. Now, how could it be that God would give spiritual gifts so that there would be no division? It's a gift. Where's, where's the room to boast? Seriously. If someone has a gift that God has given them and they're using it and then they boast about it, they have zero understanding as to what's really going on in their lives in that moment. God will use them despite their foolishness. But it's a gift. I mean, we often think of gifts in terms of what we want, right? You know, birthday gifts, Christmas gifts, Father's Day gifts, Father's Day gifts, you know, things like that. And we think in, in, in terms of, here's what I want. These are gifts you utterly need. So God has given you a gift, which the gift is the manifestation of himself in your life so that you will build other people up. It's something that everyone needs, but it's not supposed to terminate on you. So seriously, Corinthian church, where in the world did you come up with boasting as a good response to that? That's what Paul's saying here. There's no room for boasting. How could you do such a thing with something so precious? Everyone has it, so no one gets to boast about it. 
If someone says, ha ha, I have the gift of such and such, everyone else in the room could say, uh, yeah, we do too. We, we have gifts as well. It would be an awkward thing, you would think, for anyone to boast in their gifts or to look down their nose at somebody else who doesn't have the same gift that they do. You didn't earn it. That's like boasting about your salvation. I'm saved and you're not. Who saved you? Did you save yourself? Did you climb up on a cross and die for your own sins? There's no room for boasting. We boast only in what the Lord does. So if we're going to boast in the gifts, that means just go use them for the way God intended them. There's no room for boasting in fleshly things. So when, when he sees that happening here, God's plan is to give spiritual gifts to everyone so that there would be no division. Because of that, it's really fitting to encourage the dishonored. Paul's saying, guys, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And it's equally as fitting to admonish, rebuke, and correct the arrogant. God sat down in his infinite wisdom, and he looked closely at the church. Infinite wisdom. And he looked closely at the church, and he said, I will compose the body in perfect unity in the midst of great diversity. Diversity won't, won't be enough. We celebrate diversity in our culture a lot, but it's not any good unless it's unity that captures diversity and does something profoundly otherworldly. Unity in diversity. So God looks at the body in his infinite wisdom and says, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to give gifts as they're needed so that everyone shows great care for one another, suffering together and rejoicing together. This is the difference between a natural ability and a spiritual gift. Spiritual gifts are specifically from God for his people. I believe your spiritual gifts can change a lot over the course of your life depending on what church you're a part of. I'm the executive pastor at Crosspoint Fellowship. When I came to Crosspoint Fellowship, I had zero administrative abilities. Zero. I, you you want to look at my resume? I can't even balance a checkbook when I got here. It was a joke. And somehow over time, God said, you know what? I think this is what's better for the body, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you mm, some gifting that you never had before. And if you boast in it, you're an idiot. He didn't say that out loud, but I feel like that's what he meant. So God, in his infinite wisdom, he gives us these gifts. It is impossible to exercise spiritual gifts if you do not have a deep interest in building up the church. It's more than a natural ability. What this means is that when you seek to edify and encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ, what God does is God gives you gifts in a manner so that you are far more able to build others up than if you were simply relying on your natural abilities. Everyone serves everyone with the gifts that God has given them so that there's no room for boasting and there's no division. And our last point of the morning is this. Some of you may have already caught this point. Some of you may not, but it's found in verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Paul isn't simply using the metaphor of a body to help us understand spiritual gifts. Rather, third point of the morning, we exercise spiritual gifts as the body of Christ. Not metaphorically the body of Christ. We are exercising gifts as the body of Christ. Rather than just viewing ourselves as a body metaphorically, we exercise our gifts as the body of Christ actually. In 1.13, at the beginning of this letter, Paul poses the question, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? Why would he ask that question? Because he was looking at the Corinthian church that was divided. And he's saying, interesting Corinthian church, I love you guys. I've spent a lot of time uh, uh, pouring into you. And as, as I'm looking at you, what I'm seeing is that you're utterly divided. You're divided when you take the supper. You're divided when it comes to spiritual gifts. You guys are suing each other. Some of y'all are getting drunk on the supper. This doesn't even look like a church. What is going on, Corinthian church? Yet, they have an abundance of spiritual gifts. It's amazing. God is working in the midst of them. But what he's doing is he's looking at them and saying, y'all are divided. You're a divided bunch of people. And that leads me to ask the question, is Christ divided? Because if Christ is divided, we have a problem. But if Christ isn't divided, y'all should not be acting in a divided way. He views the church not as a body of Christians, but as the body of Christ. Do you view yourself like that? A member of the body of Christ. Sam Storms says spiritual gifts are God going public among his people. When we put all that together, what, what we have is this, a body 
that is carefully seeking the upbuilding of all of its members through the use of gifts, which are the manifestation of God in His people, particularly providing what is needed at a certain point in the life of that body. To be the body of Christ in this manner is to communicate the words of Christ. It is to think the thoughts of Christ, all the while serving as Christ's hands and Christ's feet. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. People should be able to look at this church, look at this little body of believers, and say, so it is with Christ. God has put us together in such a manner that people should be able to look at us and say, that looks like Jesus. When I hear from them, I'm hearing from Jesus. When they serve me, I feel like I'm being served by Jesus. When they love me, I feel like I'm being loved by Jesus. Our hope in these next 10 weeks is that we can learn more how to be the body of Christ through the exercise of the gifts to one another and then to the world. Ephesians 1.22 says this. You don't have to turn there. I just want you to hear it in closing. And he, God, put all things under his feet. The saying that God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave Jesus his head over the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The ESV study Bible notes that Christ has so identified himself with the church that it is said to be his very body. Much as Adam described Eve as bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and as God declared man and wife to be one flesh. What we have here is a picture of fullness when people are using their gifts for the upbuilding of everyone else. The church, filled by Christ, fills all of creation as representatives of Christ. Let's pray before we take the supper. Lord, we have so much to marvel at this morning. Lord, I hope in light of the text this morning, most of us are sitting here realizing you have done so much more in the life of this church this morning than we could have ever realized. Lord, I hope that we are marveling at the reality that you have manifested yourself in the very people that we're sitting next to and that you have given words to people so that, people would be, so that others would be edified and built up and encouraged. Lord, I pray that we would never take that lightly. Lord, my prayer is that you would move mightily in this body over the course of the next 10 weeks as we consider what the spiritual gifts are and how we put them to use. I pray that over the next 10 weeks, that in light of where we go in the text and in light of the time spent in the Word, that we as a body would grow in our understanding of who we actually are. We would grow in our understanding of what's true about us. I pray that people would learn their gifts, and I pray that you would create in this body a deep, deep desire to see others built up. Lord, take away the selfishness. Take away the arrogance. Please take away the pride and help us to each come in low, using our gifts at every opportunity we have for the upbuilding of the body. As always, your ways are so much higher than our ways. We love you. We praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take the supper, and it's something that we do every week. Just a page before, probably, in your Bible, 1 Corinthians 10.16 says... The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? We are participants in the body of Christ. And then in 11.23, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as often as we take the supper, we're proclaiming that Christ died, and we're doing that until he comes back to bring us home. That's something we're actually participating in as a body every single week when we take this. And whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Do you hear that? There's a strong warning to make sure we don't take the supper the wrong way this morning. It goes on to say, let a person examine himself, then and so eat of the bread and the drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So I think the obvious question is, how do I discern the body? As we take the supper, I don't want to drink and eat judgment upon myself. So I want to take this rightly. And what God says is that in order to take it rightly, you don't take it flippantly, but you take it examining your life, examining yourself. So here, as we distribute the elements in a few moments, here's the questions that I want you to consider as you discern the body, as you examine yourself. Is your movement fitting with Christ's movement? Do you have a selfish nature or a sacrificial nature? Do you look down your nose at anybody and think you're better than them? Do you sit there, as one of the members explained in the text, who says, because I'm not like that person, I'm unimportant? Because what you actually need to do is repent from thinking that you're unimportant. Am I divisive? Am I divided? Scripture says that when we come together and we do what we're doing here, if you're at odds with someone, it would be best for you not to take the supper right now, but to get up and go outside and call them right now. Like this may be the moment in your life where you're finally going to have the beginning of what could be reconciliation with someone you're divided with. So when we start passing these elements out, some of you may need to go call someone and work towards that reconciliation and begin that process because it's not appropriate that we be divided. We misrepresent Christ. You can ask, am I at odds with anyone and doing nothing about it? Do I care about the upbuilding and the edifying of other people? And maybe the most important was, is, are you trusting Christ as your Lord, Savior, and treasure? Because this supper is for those who are, who are trusting Christ as Lord, as Savior, as treasure, knowing that there's no other way for you to be forgiven of your sins. So if you're here this morning and you don't know that, what you need to know is you're a sinner. And in Christ, you can have forgiveness of those sins because outside of Christ, the wages of sin is death. Outside of Christ, if you're not a believer, you draw God's wrath, not the love and the outpouring of himself and the manifestation of the Spirit. But the beauty of it is, it's a free gift. We have a free gift opportunity where you can confess your sins, repent, and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord and trust him. If you're proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord and you're trusting him, the supper is for you this morning. But everyone here, regardless of where you are, I want you to take a few minutes while we're passing out the elements to discern the body and examine yourself. Let's pass out the elements. As a people who are on the receiving end of the most incredible gifts we could ever imagine, God manifesting himself in us as the body of Christ in remembrance of Christ, Take and eat. Take and drink. Lord, we continue in worship, and as we do, I pray that you would um, help us to continue in wholeheartedness. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, you may, you may have heard me mention a couple of the spiritual gifts, but not all of them, and you might be sitting there thinking... Well, that sounds great and all, but I don't even know what the spiritual gifts are. And even after the sermon, I have no idea what my spiritual gift is. That's okay. We're spending 10 weeks on this. So here's what I want you to do. There's two things. One, as we're going through this entire sermon series, I want you to begin to focus on how you can build other people up. Like make a point every single day to say, how can I build other people up? So that's going to mean you're going to have to spend time looking at how people need to be built up, how you might encourage someone, how you might bestow honor on someone. Because what I think is that as we go through that process, 
and you, you have an eye towards other people through the whole process, I think God's going to make clear what those gifts are and how you can use them and also how you can grow in them and desire. The last part that we didn't get to this morning is to earnestly desire more gifts. So you're not limited. Like, we're, we're careful with spiritual gift assessments because we don't want to paint you into a corner where you're a tiger. And that's it. So do tiger stuff. Because they're not supposed to be limiting factors. We're supposed to ha- know that we have gifts and eagerly anticipate growing in them and, and really pursue that. So the first thing is focus on other people. How can I build other people up? That means you're going to have to get to know people. Remember what we talked about this morning was unity in the midst of diversity. Do your friendships have any diversity? Or are your only friends people who look like you, sound like you, your age with the same age kids? Because your friendships are supposed to have diversity according to the text this morning. And it's in that diversity that the unity of Christ does something beautiful. So consider your friendships. Consider reaching out to people that you might not normally connect with. And show them the love of Christ because God's given you the gift to be able to do that. The second thing is, you know, don't be this guy. Like, seriously, don't be this guy. When I got done preaching, the first thing my daughter came over, I'm always like, say something profound. You got something. She said, I'm going to need to see that hand. <laughs> and my other daughter came over and said, where's the hand? It's right here. And that's where it's staying. <laughs> but don't be this guy. Don't be the guy that's disconnected. And, like, there's absolutely no reason for you to languish apart from the body. What you have heard this morning is nobody is unwelcome. Not a single one of you can say, I don't belong. Now, it may very well be that it's not real obvious what your gift is. And what the text told us this morning is, take the time it takes to figure that out. It may take more time for some people to figure out where they fit in in serving other people. But God's guarantee is it's somewhere. And if we'll be diligent about it, we'll figure that out. In light of that, um, if you're visiting with us this morning and you don't have a church home, number one, there are cards in the back of the chairs and there, it's a little visitor card that you can fill out. If you'll fill that out and either put it in one of these little offering satchels or take it over to this little kiosk here. Clay Petzold, that's Clay, raise your hand, Clay. Clay, re- good job, buddy. Um, Clay really wants to meet you this morning. He's going to be at, at this little kiosk and there's information on how to get involved in the church. And there's a couple things. One is life group. Life group is how we do this stuff, how we have life-on-life engagement where people know you and you know people. And the other part of this that I was thinking about this morning is for for heads of household, lead your family in worship at home too. Because in light of the, the text, you may have little ones who are new believers that God is manifesting in himself in them via the manifestation of the Spirit and they have spiritual gifts that it's your responsibility to help them to understand that. It's your responsibility to disciple them and bring them up. So don't take any of that lightly, but be so encouraged at what God is doing in this body and in every body that exists. It's very, very beautiful. Let's stand, and I'm going to pray, and we'll be dismissed. Uh, Lord, we thank you for um, the many ways that you bless us and the gifts that we have. My prayer is that we would leave here and make sure that we're not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word also as well. um, I'm thankful for your word as it says, think over what I say and I'll give you understanding. So my prayer is that as we leave, that we would be thinking over what has been said in the coming weeks and that in thinking over that stuff, that you will give us understanding that we would otherwise not have. Lord, we love you. Thank you for calling us to yourself. Thank you for giving us a place where we belong, and thank you for allowing us to be a blessing to others as we use our gifts. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a great day.